Good morning. All right, so what do you think of when I say the word good? Like, good morning, right? Yeah. Um, Just think about kind of the definition of the word good in your mind. It's kind of like, especially in our culture, it's like positive, but meh, right? Like, you're like, how was your dessert? It was was good. Wasn't great, right? But it was good. We kind of think of good as just one small step into great, right? It's the first tier of something being really great or really excellent. And and the Bible, in how it treats the word good, is completely different than that. And we're working our way through a series right now on what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is the ways that God changes us from the inside out through the Holy Spirit and makes us into a different person. And as the the Holy Spirit matures us, one of the things that He does is He increases our goodness. Today we're looking at that aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, goodness. So let's pray and let's see what this uh, good book, I'm sorry, it's a dad joke, um, has to say, thank you, Um, you must have a dad, um, about goodness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we do thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that you are a good God who created everything and said that it was good. And so we just pray that you would transform us from the inside out through your word um, in our goodness. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the first time in the Bible we stumble across the word good is literally on the first page. So if you have your Bible, you can flip all the way to all the way, just one page in, uh, to Genesis chapter one, starting in verse one, where it says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And this pattern right here repeats itself, right? Those of us who know this creation account, it repeats itself five times. God continues to create everything from the sun to raspberries. And every step along the way, he stops at the end of that day and he says, that thing is good. So what is good? Right? Well, good in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word tov. And the Hebrew word tov, which I think is coming up, there it is, uh, means this. Having desirable or positive qualities. Okay, we would think that is good, right? Especially those suitable for a thing specified. So something being good is not just that it's good, but that it is good at precisely the thing it is supposed to be good at, right? It is created for a purpose, and it does that thing. So, for instance, the sun is good when it shines and makes things warm and it provides light. Raspberries are good when they taste wonderful and they get stuck in your teeth. They do the things that they are created to do, and that makes these things good, right? So hold on to that because in creation for five days, everything's good. Everything's good. Everything's good. Now we hit the sixth day of creation uh, starting in, in verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. 
God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creation that, or every creature that crawls on the earth. And God also said, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed, this will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Do you see the subtle shift? After God created humankind, he declared that it was very tov, that it was very good. In other words, humankind was created to do something, and they did it very tov. They did it as they were meant to do it. What were they created to do? Well, all of humankind was created to reflect the image of God. And what did it say? To rule, to, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth. This is what every human that was ever created were created to do. And when God looked at Adam and Eve, he said, good job, very good job. You are doing what you were created to do. Now, in the second chapter of Genesis, what we have is, is it zooms in on the sixth day and gives us a little more color commentary on that day. That's how you can take uh, chapter two. And I'm going to skip my way through chapter two and hit a bunch of what this chapter has to say. So let's just jump our way through it. Starting in verse eight, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man that he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat from it, uh, you will certainly die." And then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come upon over the man and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman for she was taken from man. And this is why... A man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Okay, long passage, right? And there's a lot in there, but I just want to focus on two things. Actually, four things. <laughs> two trees, two people, right? Trees and people. There are two trees in the middle of this garden. Notice that. There was the tree of life, and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what is that word good? Tov. And what did God declare was good? Both trees. Right there in the garden are two trees. Both are good. And then he places into the garden Adam and Eve. And they were permitted to eat from one of the trees, the tree of life. And they weren't to eat from the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. Right? So hold on to all that. We got two people. We got two trees. Now we have a new chapter, chapter three. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Now you'll notice there were two trees in the middle of the garden. She only pointed out one. She said, that's the one we can't eat from, right? No, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. All right. Now, whether you have grown up in the, the church or you're just new to this Jesus thing, there's probably parts of the story that you're very, very familiar with, right? So what is going on here, right? This fruit uh, of the knowledge of, of good and evil, it wasn't magical, right? It wasn't poisonous like the apple in Snow White. Uh, it, it was good. It was part of the good creation. It was tov. It wasn't the fruit that condemned Adam and Eve. It was the choice that they made to disobey God and to eat that fruit. And the choice that they were given was between life which they could eat from, or the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this doesn't mean knowledge in the sense of they knew something intellectually. They already knew, right? They knew what good was, they knew what evil was, because they were already told, eat from this tree, fill the earth, subdue it, rule, do all these things. All those things are good. All those things are tov. They knew how to do them. It was very good. But the one thing that they, they knew not to do, they knew was evil intellectually, was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what is this knowing? Well, the knowing is the experiencing. When Adam and Eve chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they experienced evil. They chose evil. And in doing so, what they declared is that they believed that evil was good. By their actions, they declared God doesn't get to decide what is good and evil for me. I get to decide what is good and evil for me. They planted their flag of moral autonomy in the garden and said, I get to decide what is tov. I get to decide what is good. And the result was immediate shame. They looked at one another. They realized they were naked. They sewed together fig leaves. They tried to cover it up because immediately there was shame in that. Go down to verse 22. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out to take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. The, the, he drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Think about this. If the key to life was choosing good 
and there's this tree that gave life in the middle of the garden. This was a severe mercy in the words of a guy named Sheldon Van Auken. This is a severe mercy where God basically says, we, I am keeping you from the tree of life because can you imagine if this entire world was filled with people who chose evil and the people in this world that chose evil got to live forever. This was a severe mercy. And so what we see in the rest of the Bible is, is the, the children of Adam and Eve constantly trying to find life. And they find life by constantly planting their flag of moral autonomy and saying, I know how to find life. I know what is good. I know what is tove. And eventually when they couldn't do that by their own conscience, God gives the children of Israel a law. It says, you can't do this. Here's a law. Follow these laws. But they, they didn't follow the law. And this entire book right here, here has no good people in it. It has no good guys in this story until we finally jump over to the New Testament and we meet one, Jesus. And one day someone comes up to Jesus and asks him a question. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's that word again, good but now we're in the New Testament. New Testament's written in Greek instead of in Hebrew, so we better check the definition to see what the definition of good is right here, right? So if we check the word good, which is agathos in Greek, it means having desirable or positive qualities, especially those suitable for a thing specified. Huh. What this means is different language, different words, same meaning because good is good. And this teacher comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Remember the law that they were given because they couldn't figure out how to do good themselves? <laughs> he said, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your mother, uh, father and mother. And then his response to Jesus, to the guy that just told him that no one is good, his response is, I've kept all these. <laughs> from my youth. In other words, what does he say? I'm good, right? <laughs> I got those. I, I, I got this whole thing figured out. And when Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. See, all, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And after he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. All right. I know we've been reading a lot of verses, but this is where the intersection happens between good and goodness. Remember what we were created to do in the garden? To rule this earth, to subdue it, to be fruitful and multiply. We, we were created for something. We were created to reflect the image of God to this world. That's good. That's tove, that's very good. And sometimes we do good things. We try to do good things and it's on the outside of us. And it's like a, a little bit of a veneer. It's a shiny appearance that we put on so that other people will think that we are good. What Jesus did with this guy is he went behind the shiny veneer to his heart and he knew what his issue was because he was very rich. This was not a command to all people for all time. He knew this guy. He knew this guy's heart. He knew from this guy's heart was not flowing good. There wasn't goodness from his heart. There was something else. He had just had the shiny veneer. And so Jesus went to that spot. That's goodness. What is goodness? 
goodness is a deliberate preference of right to wrong, a firm resistance of moral evil, and choosing and following all moral good. Do you see how this connects to both the Hebrew and Greek definitions of good? When we prefer right, when we resist evil, when we choose moral good, we are doing what we were created to do in the Garden of Eden. We are looking at the trees in the garden and we're choosing life. But there's a problem. Romans 5.12 tells us the problem. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. This is called the sin of Adam. And because Adam sinned, his sin gets to us and we make the same choice that he did. Every day, day after day, we choose evil. We call it good. We, we plant our flag of moral autonomy in the ground and say, I get to pick what is good for me. No one outside of me gets to tell me what is good for me. That's what we do because that's what Adam did. But just a couple verses later, it says, but if by one man's trespass, death reigned through that man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Look at that phrase. I love that phrase. The overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness. This is what Christians call the gospel. We tend to choose evil. It's what we do. And then Jesus stepped into our creation. He stepped into our choices. He stepped into the results of our choices, the, 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 what's happened in this world, and he chose good. And he perfectly stepped into this creation and lived the life that we couldn't live. And then he died on the cross, taking all of the evil, all of our wrong choices, every time we choose wrong, onto himself so that he could overflow grace. And grace is getting what we don't deserve and the gift of righteousness. He gives us himself, his own righteousness to us. And, and think again about all that that gift entails. Let me reread that verse. If by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man? What is reigning in life? It's what you were called to do in the garden, to rule, to reign, to choose to eat from the tree of life. When you go to the very last book of the Bible, it describes in the very last chapter what it will one day be like. It says this, then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the city's main street, the tree of life was on each side of the river bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. This is what eternity is going to be like for us. We are gonna have life. That tree of life is gonna be on both sides of the river now, right? And the fruit of those trees, that tree of life will heal the nations. It'll heal all that is broken in this world. We will finally live perfectly in the image of God. We will finally live tov. We will finally live very tov, what we were created for. This is the future for everyone who believes in Jesus. So how does this affect us now? 
simply because of the work of Jesus on the cross and the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can begin to live now lives that reflect this goodness. We can live in ways that are suitable for how we were created. And there's countless implications. Like every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our relationships, every aspect of our church family can begin to reflect the image of God in this new way. And, and I can spend all the rest of my life applying this. But what I want to do is I want to focus on one area in our church that we've been thinking about where this applies to us. And I want to warn you, the application that I'm about to give has tons of nuance. And I can't follow every rabbit trail unless you want to be with us all week and answer every question. And so I'm going to acknowledge that up front. Let's see if we can find this application in Scripture by going back through the texts that we've already looked at. Let's go back to the beginning, to creation. To when everything was tov. What do we have? We have in the garden two trees and two people. We have Adam and we have Eve. Adam was made of dust and Eve was created from Adam's side. Now that implies that Adam and Eve, along with every man and woman who's ever lived, are equal. Eve was given a distinct role in relation to Adam. Do you remember what it was? Being helper. That is the word azer in Hebrew which means a person who contributes to the fulfillment of a need or the furtherance of a purpose. And by the way, uh, this is not a, a subservient word. This is a word that Scripture uses to describe God and his relationship to us. This is a good word. This is someone who contributes to the fulfillment of a need or furtherance of purpose. What was the need and the furtherance of the purpose? It was to rule and to reign and to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the earth. It was that men and women were created to be equal in their partnership in order to rule, to subdue the earth, to, 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 to do what God had called them to do, to reflect the image of God in this world. And it was all good. It was all very tove. But then the serpent did what? He tempted he spoke half-truths even to Eve. And do you remember what the, the passage said? Let me reread it. Uh, chapter 3, verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was a desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Eve saw that the tree was good for food. Eve took some of that fruit. Eve ate some of that fruit. Eve gave some of that fruit to, to Adam, and he ate it. And the most telling chunk in this passage is where it moves on from there. And it says, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The whole time Eve was being tempted, Adam was standing right there. Adam, who God had created... And he was doing what many men do. He was being passive. I've interacted with a lot of men over my decades of ministry, and most men, in my experience, struggle with either being passive or angry. Most men that I deal with deal with either being silent or violent. They don't lead. They don't protect. They don't lay down their lives. They don't serve. Now hold this all in your head. Let me reread it again. This verse in Romans 5, where it says this. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. Eve saw that the tree was good for food. 
Eve took of the fruit. Eve ate the fruit. Eve gave the fruit to her, her husband, Adam, and then he ate it. And then Adam, according to Romans, is held responsible for sin entering the world. Death entered the human race through Adam, didn't enter the human race through Eve. Why? Because he had a role. He had a role to communicate God's word to Eve, to lead her, to protect her, to care for her. She was his equal partner. He was supposed to do that so she could help him with the tasks at hand, and he failed. And now he was held responsible for this. And what we see is both an equality in their relationship between Adam and Eve and specific responsibilities that both Adam and Eve held in their relationships. So what does this have to do with our church? And what does this have to do with goodness? A couple things. It is clear from the Bible that God created men and women with spiritual and moral equality. We together are to bear the image of God. We together are to rule over creation. We together are to display God's character to the world. We reflect God's diversity and his unity when we flourish together as equal partners as men and women. And in the New Testament, we say the primary metaphor for the church is a family a siblinghood of brothers and sisters. The primary metaphor that we have for our relationship with one another is brothers and sisters. The local church should be a place where brothers and sisters have love that is cultivated, where we lay down our lives for one another to serve one another, where we lay down our preferences for one another to serve one another. And every one of us has a role to play to exercise our gifts in the church and community as we reflect the image of God and do what we're created to do. And there's one role in the church, and that is a pastor, which literally means shepherd in the Bible, and it's synonymous with the term elder in the Bible. And because the church is a family, there are scriptural qualifications for a pastor that start in his home. A pastor is to be married. He's, we're told he is to be a one-woman man who is leading well in his home because that shows that he can be entrusted with the idea of overseeing God's household, right? Pastors are to model servant-hearted leadership, servant-hearted male leadership in their family in how they lead the church. And they can't be like this first man, Adam, but to display the loving and tender care of the son of man, Jesus. Now, for as long as I can remember at Riff, and I've been here a long time, we've talked about the fact that this role of pastor, and we have a team of them, by the way, we don't just have one, we have a bunch of us, um, is to provide theological oversight for the church, which includes weekend service preaching, what I'm doing right now, um, overseeing spiritual health in the church, equipping and setting the mission vision. And we say, that's what elders are to do. That's what pastors are to do. That's it. And for as long as I can remember, we as a church have said that any role, any work of ministry in the church that does not require an elder is open to any qualified and appointed woman or man in our church. And this is where we failed. There has been kind of like this subtle and sometimes not so subtle clergy laity distinction where people think that the pastors are the ones that are there to do the ministry. But in scripture, it's almost exactly backward of that. Ministry belongs to the church. Pastors are responsible to equip people 
to encourage people, to release them to do what God has created them to do, to do the good that was created for them in the Garden of Eden, to reflect the image of God in our church and our community. And what's happened at RIV is because we really do believe that the, the office of pastor, the office of elder is reserved for men, is men have ended up bottlenecking our ministry pipeline. And we've not given women the training, encouragement, opportunity, and authority to leave, lead in our church well. And what that has done is it not reflected the fruit of goodness in our church. What do I mean by that? What is good? Good is having desirable or positive qualities, especially those suitable for a thing specified. Remember what goodness is? Goodness is a deliberate preference of right to wrong, a firm resistance of moral evil, choosing and following of all moral good. So at RIV, what we're doing is we're going to deliberately choose for our church to display the desirable and positive qualities that are suitable for the church and for our brothers and sisters in the church so that women and men in our church can flourish the way God has designed. What this means is we have a lot of work to do in this area, and we're going to do some of that starting today. What we're going to do is we're going to continue to have a few qualified called men serving the role of elder, of pastor. They will continue to protect and lead the church um, by providing theological oversight, watching over the spiritual health of our church. We're going to continue to do that. And we are going to actively empower and platform both women and men in roles that don't specifically require an elder. We've been working toward this over the last several years. For instance, right now at RIV, on our board of trustees, we have both men and women. Uh, the chairperson of our board is a woman. Uh, we've been moving towards some of this stuff in places in our church where we don't require an elder. We are going to be actively empowering and giving authority to both women and men to lead in those spaces. So we're revamping our leadership teams. And whenever a team does not require an elder, there will be leadership positions in those teams for both women and men who are qualified for those roles. In fact, our, our desire and our plan is to hire at least two new director-level positions in, in the next six months in our church that will be filled by women. Additionally, today, we're going to recognize two new sets of leaders at Riverview. The first is a term you're probably very familiar with, but we just haven't used it, Riv, and that is deacons. In the Bible, uh, we see that deacons are men and women uh, who serve the church by helping to execute the mission, right, and the vision. It's a biblical term, but we haven't used it because we're like, eh, it's such a churchy term, right? But we, you know what we are? We're a church. <laughs> it's okay uh, to use churchy terms in the church. And, and we've called people deacon-level leaders. We've had all kinds of leaders in our church, and we've said, yeah, you have to be qualified as a deacon to play this, but then we've never appointed them as a deacons, and we're like, you know what? That is stupid, Let's actually call these people deacons because they are. And the cool thing in Scripture is because uh, the, the office of deacon doesn't actually carry with it any specific roles in Scripture, we are free to assign to deacons any task that doesn't require an elder. And so we can raise up people to serve in these roles. And, and one thing that's notable in Scripture is the one qualification that, that deacons don't have to have is the ability to teach which is because this particular role, this kind of teaching that I'm doing is reserved for the, for the elders. And at RIV, we take the elders and those who are in the pipeline of becoming elders so that they can be trained in that. And, and, and so we have deacons in our church serving in all kinds of places, and it may change from season to season. We may add deacons and take deacons away as we have different roles in the church because they help to execute the vision. And so right now, we're going to be recognizing this first wave of deacons today, and 
these are people who, are, some of them are ministry team leads. Uh, some of them are volunteer team leads with significant leadership oversight. Our student ministry staff, our kids ministry staff are all filled by deacons. And we're going to actually give them that title and recognize them as deacons. The second thing we're going to do today is we're recognizing a new set of leaders in our church that we're calling ministers. And this isn't a new term for us. We've used it before. We've had Stephen ministers. You may remember in the past, we've used that term. But now we're defining that role and giving it some clarity in the church. At RIV, ministers are men and women with deacon-level character who have significant leadership or ministerial responsibilities in the church. These are leaders who will be empowered with real responsibility and the authority to execute those responsibilities. And so we are, as of today, recognizing some new ministers. And today's wave is uh, some of our employed directors that have departmental oversight and leads over some of our larger care ministries in the church that are caring for people um, and, and shepherding people. And so I want you to hear this. This is not window dressing. We are committed to empowering leaders, both women and men. And, and what that means is you'll see different leaders popping up at different times. When it doesn't require an elder, we will seek to fill those roles without elders. So there will be a lot of times where different leaders are popping up doing stuff that maybe you haven't seen them do before, both women and men. And here's the thing, changes like this take time, so please bear with us as we execute this stuff. And here's the thing I can promise you, we're gonna screw this up a little bit as we're doing it. We're gonna make some mistakes as we're doing this and it's gonna be okay, uh, it'll be fine and it'll be worth it. We also know that there are faithful Christians who share our high view of scripture who will find these convictions and practices to be either far too conservative or far too liberal. We know that. <laughs> and at RIV, we partner with individuals and churches and ministries and organizations that have wildly different views on this and we just ask for charity. Christian charity as, as we look at these things in Scripture differently, because at RIV, we want to invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus as we stumble together in our pursuit to love like him. So what we're going to do to wrap up the service today is we're going to recognize our first wave of deacons and ministers. And when I say wave, I mean wave. Across our church today, we're recognizing somewhere around 30 deacons and we're recognizing six ministers, and more than half of them are women. And so for those of you at our Rio Town and Westside venue, I'm going to just throw this to Justin and Tony, let them take it from here. And at this time here at Holt and for our online services, um, for those of you who are being recognized as deacons or ministers right now, as well as any elders, any pastors who are in the room, if you guys would come up to the stage, I have no idea how many are in this room. So, because people are spread out amongst our venues. So anybody who's being recognized as a deacon or minister, if you guys would come up today. Um, and again, yep, we'll see... Everybody fine up here? This is that awkward time where just everybody walks, so we'll just silently stand here. <laughs> Thanks, Emily. All right. So here's what we're going to do. Come on, come on in. By the way, several of these people told me I do not want to stand on the stage. Um, and so uh, be, uh, give them a little bit of grace. Actually, give them one round of applause before we can start. But standing on the stage. Um, 
So I'm going to move out of the way for a second. I'm going to have each one of these folks introduce themselves and tell you um, the area of ministry in which they serve. Uh, uh, Ryan had made a great suggestion earlier that we should have everyone announce themselves and then you guys can shout out what you think they do. Um, um, but I, I don't think we're going to do that. So, so we're, I'm going to get out of the way and then you're going to start over here and just pass it down. I'm Anita Brett and I work with Women's Ministries. I'm Ryan Weber, and I mean, guess. No? All right. Uh, I lead music. Richard Visser's production. I'm Sarah Hainer. I lead our Riv Kids curriculum team. Wendy Smith. I do Riv Communities and Women's Ministry. Jenny Cole. I am the Riv Kids director. Melissa Cranzo, Women Ministry and Bible Studies. Supervencil, side by side. Josh Nunn, I am the tech director here. Nope. Pastor, he doesn't get to talk. Um, okay, so. Uh, <laughs> go ahead. You want to introduce yourself? That's Mark. Okay, there you go. Um, so in 1 Timothy 3, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, am I going to be in the light if I stand over here? Can you guys see me? All right, so in, in 1 Timothy 3, um, there's a passage that talks about the qualifications of a deacon. And all of you, whether you're deacons or ministers, this is the minimum set of, of qualifications for you. And I just want to read two chunks of it uh, for you right now. So in 1 Timothy 3, the first bit uh, says this, deacons likewise should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And you men and women are here today because this describes you. Uh, this wasn't flippant in our choices of our first wave of people. Uh, this is people that we see this in you. We see you as people who are not hypocritical. We see you as people who are worthy of respect. We see you as people who hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. And my challenge to you is this holding to the faith with a clear conscience. This is the piece that's on you. We can't read your mind. We can't read your conscience. But it's up to you to serve in this role with a clear conscience. And if the day comes that you don't, can't serve in a clear conscience, you let us know. <laughs> That's the first thing. The second bit is at the end, where it says, for those who have served well as deacons, acquire a good standing for themselves and a great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And this is what I'm praying for you guys. I'm praying that you guys have a good standing, that in our church community and in our surrounding community, you'd be known as people with a good standing. And that you would be bold, that you would not just be bold in your faith, but have great boldness in your faith as you lead and serve our church body. We are thrilled uh, to have you guys officially, most of you, I think all of you, have been serving for a very, very long time. And it's about dang time that we recognized you. And it's about time that we, we gave you the, the titles of the office for which you have been serving. And so we're just thrilled to be with you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask uh, Mark to pray as well and to close us in prayer. And I know this may be crazy for you guys, but there's also a passage in Scripture that said, I want men everywhere uh, to, to lift up their holy hands in prayer, free of anger and controversy. And our culture has a lot of anger and controversy now. So instead, and this may be new to you, would you guys raise your hands with us as we pray and pray for these folks? And let's pray for them um, as they step into this, these roles. So Heavenly Father, we thank you. And we thank you for these uh, women and men who have already shown that they have 
a, a great reputation, that they, uh, these are people who have already been bold in their faith. And so we just pray that you would increase that. Uh, we pray that as they serve our church family and in our community, um, that you would give fruit to their ministry. Uh, we pray that there would be uh, people who would, uh, start, would come to Christ through the, the, their work and the work of their testimony. And so we just thank you for them, and we, we praise and honor you uh, for raising them up for such a time as this. Lord, you said that the greatest among you will be those who serve. In our society, and in, in our economy, that's backwards. And yet in your kingdom, that's how you call us to, to lead, by serving. And I thank you for these women and men who have faithfully served in so many ways over so many months and years, both here and in the other venues and so many places in our community. And I just pray that you would strengthen their faith, strengthen the work of their hands, and we pray that you would raise up more and more women, men to be deacons and ministers in our future. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.